Let's open our Bibles this morning to John chapter 3. Third chapter of John, famous, probably the most memorized verse is included with that, chapter, verse 16. You have to wait till next week to get to verse 16, though. The story of the man Nicodemus. If you're able, will you stand with me as I read the word of God? Gracious Lord, we pray that you would come upon us, that we would have understanding, that we might see in the life of Nicodemus and and your work within him what it is that you do in the human heart, that we might understand the change that comes when Christ enters our lives and makes us new, that we might have an understanding then of what we are called to do, how we are called to live because of this great love. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. John chapter 3. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to him by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Well, Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it. But do not know where it comes from or where it is going, so is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus answered and said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel and you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak that which we know and bear witness of that which we have seen, and you do not receive our witness. I have told you earthly things, and you do not believe. How shall you believe if I tell you heavenly things? And no one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, even the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes may in him have eternal life. This is the inspired word of God for us today. So please be seated. At the end of chapter 2, verse 23 and following, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, during the feast many believed in his name, beholding his signs which he was doing. But Jesus on his part was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. And because he did not need anyone to bear witness concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. We think of Jeremiah, the 17th chapter, and Uh, The heart of man is completely wicked, it's evil, and and, and Jeremiah testifies to that, and Jesus is is hinting at that right here at this point. And so we begin chapter 3 with that in mind, that he has just mentioned what is in the heart of man. And along comes Nicodemus, a man. Now he is a man, and a man of 
I think, a fine representation for all of us, um, especially in the way that, that we think of ourselves. Now, it wouldn't have been so effective if a, uh, a tax collector or if a prostitute or if a Roman emperor came uh, upon Jesus at this time, because we could all look at that person and say, yeah, that's, um, that's a bad sinner. I'm not that bad of a sinner, but that's a bad sinner. I mean, we all know tax collectors at that time were, were very bad, corrupt. They, they made their living off of um, charging extra taxes, so that's where they made their money, and prostitutes uh, were very bad at that time. Roman emperor, well, he was, they were all kind of crazy and, and evil. So uh, we get the idea that that would have been bad, but Nicodemus comes, and, and he's not quite like that. Someone who is visibly and culturally and, and personally very righteous in what he does. And we certainly can identify with that as we think that, that what, you're never as bad as somebody else. Okay, oh yeah, well I know I've done some, some bad things, but, but you should see my neighbor. Okay, you see my brother. No, no, you should see, well, you should see Randy, you should see what he does, okay. Well... This is the point that John is making here by including this this interaction with Nicodemus. For all of his spiritual preparedness, he was still a spiritual failure. For all that he had done to be right with the Lord, to make himself right with the Lord, he was still not right with the Lord. Now, Nicodemus was a Pharisee. It says very clearly there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. Now, in Jesus' day, the Pharisees were much more of an ethical cult, um, a religious cult that, that propounded an ethical way of life based upon the laws, both of the Old Testament and also all the laws that man created to go with the laws of the Old Testament. Okay, some 600 extra laws. Um, just as an illustration, um, you couldn't travel, um, you weren't supposed to do work on the Sabbath. According to the Old Testament, you'll remember that uh, when the people were gathered in the desert, somebody went out on the Sabbath to collect firewood uh, so that they could have a fire to to bake the the, the bread, etc. And he was stoned to death because he went and worked on the Sabbath. That's how serious they were about keeping the Sabbath. Well, man came along and began to, to tweak those laws. And how they interpreted that about work is that you, you, they therefore couldn't travel on the Sabbath because traveling was considered work. But then they tweaked them a little bit more and said, well, you really couldn't travel but so far from where you lived on the Sabbath. Okay, These are all the things that man is adding and that the Pharisees had to live with. So then they get the idea, well, if I couldn't travel more than so many miles from my house, how about on the day before the Sabbath... I go out and put an article from my house that far away. So let's say you couldn't travel more than a mile from your house. So the day before the Sabbath, if you wanted to go two miles, you would go out from your house and put an article of clothing alongside the road or a pot from your house, and you would travel a mile. And there would be something from your house. And you would say, oh, this is from my house, so that makes it okay. I can travel another mile. Okay. So you see they were making laws, and then they were finding out how they could circumvent the laws that they had made to add on to the things of Scripture, which said, don't work on the Sabbath because it belongs to the Lord. Give him glory and honor. Devote it completely to him. See, they had really twisted it in all these things. But the Pharisees, and there were really never never too many Pharisees, they were the theologically conservative people of that day, 
or to the point of very legalistic. They believe the first five books of the Bible, uh, the Old Testament, contained the inspired code of ethics of how they were supposed to live, and it shaped every area of their lives. So they applied the code as literally as they could, as I said, to every bit of their lives. Now, in today's world, uh, Nicodemus, prior to coming to Christ, might be, I, I don't know, if I had to make a picture of him, he might be the person who is a good church member, a good church member. You know, he probably comes on a regular basis, uh, maybe uh, uh, sings in the choir, comes and, and uh, opens the doors early um, and, and is there all the time, but his heart has never really been changed by the things of Christ. He understands that there is something here at church that draws him, but he is working his way into heaven, at least in his mind. That if I do these things, if I'm a good person, then I can get there. He doesn't understand what Christ has already done for him. Now, Nicodemus was not only a Pharisee, but he was also highly educated. One, we know that Pharisees were all highly educated. They were the scholars of the Old Testament. And secondly, Nicodemus is a Greek name. Okay? And in that culture, they were very concerned about the upper crust. If you, had, if you were Jewish in the upper crust, you would give your child two names. So the name that Nicodemus has and keeps is a Greek name. And they were also very concerned about the Greek philosophers. So it was very common that those in the upper crust and who would take the Greek name and, and discard their, their Hebrew name would also seek after the Greek philosophers. So... Nicodemus is, is no dummy, okay, is no dummy. So he comes in the dark of night, which is an important factor here, uh, because Nicodemus was also an astute politician. You'll see in verse 1, now there was a man of the Pharisees, we've covered that, named Nicodemus, we've covered that in his Greek name, and then the next one is a ruler of the Jews. Nicodemus was a member of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin would be, if you took in our government, if you took the executive and the legislative and the judicial branches and rolled them all into one body, that would be the Sanhedrin. So under Jewish rule, you had the Sanhedrin who could make laws, who could adjudicate laws. What's the executive branch do? Run things. I, I don't know. Okay, so you got lawmakers, um, uh, judiciary, and then you got uh, whatever... I'm showing my civics uh, ignorance here. Uh, whatever, and the executive branch. So all of them are wrapped up here in the Sanhedrin. So he was a ruler of the Jewish people. Okay, now the Sanhedrin was still under Roman rule, but as long as things went well, the Romans let them kind of govern themselves. So all of this made Nicodemus a very important man in Jewish culture. In today's world, he might be a representative, he might be a senator, uh, you know, so, so he's, he's, he's somebody. So Nicodemus is careful, he's calculating, he's astute, he, he walks very carefully, so he approaches Jesus in the dark of night to get some of his questions answered. And the main question that needed answering was why, despite all that Nicodemus was and did, did he still not know God? Now, Nicodemus is smart. He knew God here, but he didn't know God here. Okay? There was something that was not in his life that all of his searching, all of his righteousness, all of his obedience to the laws simply did not fulfill in his life. And he didn't understand that. 
So he comes to Jesus in the dark of night to ask him these questions. Now, we understand that nobody comes to Christ unless the Father draws him. That's, that's clear, and we'll see that later in, in John. And we see historically from uh, the works of Josephus, that w- Josephus was a, a Jewish historian that was captured by the Romans, and the Romans made him write their history. So the works of Josephus is a very complete history of that period of time. We see that in the works of Josephus, Nicodemus is listed as one of the leaders in the church in Jerusalem later in the first century. And also, if you flick over, and let's, let's do that now, chapter 19 of the Gospel of John. Nicodemus is mentioned again, and, and we're pretty sure that whether it was here in chapter 3 or sometime later, Nicodemus' life has changed. Okay, so the Lord is drawing him unto himself. And we see here, not only from the works of Josephus, that, as I said, later in the first century, Nicodemus, uh, there's, a, there's a name, Nicodemus is a leader in the Jerusalem church, but also here in John chapter 19, um, verse 39. Uh, we'll start in verse 38. And after these things, Joseph of Arimathea began being a disciple of Jesus, but a secret one for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate granted permission. He came, therefore, and took away his body. And Nicodemus came also, who had first come to him by night, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a 100 pounds weight. So Nicodemus accompanies Joseph of Arimathea and gathers the body of Christ. So I'm pretty sure that sometime between the third chapter and the 19th chapter, Nicodemus has been completely changed, and he is now a follower of Jesus Christ. But why does John point out at night? That, that, is it because um, it's secretive and he doesn't want everybody to know? Well, night is also a theme kind of in John. Everything bad happens at night in John. Okay? Uh, night was when Judas departed. Night was when the disciples caught no fish. Night is when no one can work. Night is when someone who tries to walk stumbles because the light is not in him. Uh, night is almost the same as dark or darkness. And we see the contrast throughout the gospel of darkness being evil and the light being Christ in particular. So does Nicodemus love the darkness now? Or is he just coming because he doesn't want anybody to know that he is approaching Jesus and asking some questions. Now, the issue of what Nicodemus finds or doesn't find in his encounter with Christ, or whether he believes or doesn't believe, or whether he's born again now or later, you're going to have to wait till next week to find out about that one. Okay? Um, Dan and I are ham and, ham and egging this passage. Okay? So uh, the big wrap-up will be next week, and I'll let Dan do the pressure on his shoulders. Okay? I'll let Dan take care of that. But we see here in the opening verses in particular that people will create structures. They will create things in their mind that will keep them from Christ. They will attempt to do all kinds of mental and spiritual gymnastics to explain away the ultimate truth of Jesus Christ. 
They will go in other places. They will take logic and twist it to such a degree that, that they can deny the plain reality that is right in front of them. And I think sometimes that's what Nicodemus does. And as we're going to see in a, in a minute, that's what people in our society today do. They simply jump through incredible hoops of their own making so they don't have to come face to face with the claims of Christ, that those claims are true, that those claims are true. Now, is Nicodemus trying to sneak into heaven? Well, no, I don't think so. Is he trying to get the benefits of the kingdom without any public um, uh, acknowledgement of who Jesus Christ is or, or to publicly manifest the change that comes in his heart? Uh, frankly, that, that's simply not possible. If Christ has changed you, then he has changed your heart, and you will be different. And you will acknowledge that publicly. You will acknowledge that publicly. Let's look at our own culture a little bit and see what kind of uh, answers we can get about how this mentality manifests itself in our world today. It's fascinating when you do a little study, and, and uh, the, the place to turn for statistics on what people believe or an examination of our culture and, and the shifts is uh, very often it's George Barna and because he does a lot of that polling, a lot of that study. So uh, I looked up some things on George Barna's website and, and, and came across some fascinating things about heaven, about how people view heaven how they think they get there, and what they feel about heaven. Now, you'll see all of those are subjective terms, how they view heaven, how they think about getting there, and how they feel about those things. Okay? And it's very interesting what we find, uh, especially on the way that people think they get to heaven, the way that people think they get to heaven. Let's start with their source of truth. How about that? From the research out there dealing with the views surrounding heaven, there seems to be a willingness to draw on how I get there and what heaven is going to be like. People in America and even in the church today draw from contradictory sources. You ask, uh, as Barna did, you poll this great number of people. People will pull from the Koran. They will pull from the Book of Mormon. They will pull from Scripture. They will pull from philosophies, all on how they get to heaven. And from those sources, they will come to a conclusion about heaven and how to get there. Now, you might think, well, there's truth there. And hopefully the Lord is using that truth to get them to Scripture and to discard the other sources. But that's not the way people work. People are taking contradictory views about heaven. And they're taking a little bit of this and a little bit of that. And a little bit of this. And they're making almost a smorgasbord of theology to figure out what they want heaven to be and how they think they ought to get to heaven. Most of it is relying ultimately not on logic, not on revelation, but on how I feel about how it should be. I feel heaven ought to be like this. You know, I feel that, that the Lord would do it this way. So that's the way that they go. And they discard the truth of Scripture. Almost half of Americans believe that Jesus Christ committed sins while he was in this world. Almost half believe that he was not sinless. And what's worse, that carries over into the church as a whole. Almost half of Protestants polled believe that Jesus was not sinless. 
and more than half do not believe in original sin. They do not believe that we are sinful enough that God has to come and save us. They believe that, well, there's enough good in me in my own natural state that I can get to heaven on my own. This, this, that is Protestants. It's not the American public. That is Protestants. Now, 80% of the people believe in heaven. And, and fascinating enough, 80% believe they're going there. Okay? Because I wouldn't want to believe it and then say, well, yeah, but I'm not going there. I'm, I'm going someplace else. They believe in heaven because mostly it's their own creation. They come up with this idea that this is the way heaven will be and I'm going to be there. Barna writes, as he expands on this, he says, Americans' willingness to embrace beliefs that are logically contradictory and their preference for blending different faith views together create unorthodox religious viewpoints. Many committed and born-again Christians believe that people have multiple options of gaining entry into heaven. They are saying, in essence, and this is evangelical Christians, personally, I am trusting Jesus Christ as my means of gaining God's permanent favor in place of heaven, in a place called heaven. But someone else could get to heaven based on their good works. I thought we did away with that at one time. Any thought that you could get to heaven on your good works. Because God is perfect. And God demands, if you want to get to heaven on your own works, what does God demand? That you be perfect. Okay? One stray thought. One stray action, which we've all probably had already today, would keep us out of heaven. Perfection is demanded if we want to get there on our own works. That's why Christ came. Because we could not be perfect. The sacrifice of animals was not sufficient. We had to have the perfect blood of Christ to cover our sins. Barnett goes on to say, Millions of Americans have redefined grace to mean that God is so eager to save people from hell that he will change his nature and his universal, universal principles for their individual benefit. See, there are people, even within the church, who believe God will change who he is, and what he says in order to save me. That's just not what Scripture says. That's not what Scripture says at all. I think that in our culture, it's not so much like Nicodemus, that he would come to him at night because he doesn't want to be seen by others. People are looking for truth in all kinds of places, and they're not coming to Christ at all. Or if they're coming and asking things from Scripture, they're also coming with their other sources of truth in their minds. Most importantly, the ultimate source of truth is what they think and what they feel and the conclusion that they come to. They kind of think that, hey, there are a lot of sources of truth out there. If I don't like what I find here, I'll go over there until I get the one that I like. I get the one that best suits my own reality. See, that's, this is not what Scripture says. Scripture says this is reality. When God says this, he doesn't change his point of view. When God says that, that the only way to get to him is through his son, that's it. There's no other way. You can't smorgasbord it. You can't pick and choose. There's one way, and that is Jesus Christ. We have to understand that in our, in our culture... People aren't so much worried about how they are perceived in seeking truth as they are about finding a truth that they like. 
but finding a truth that they like. So how do we address this? Well, we address it with the truth, the truth of Jesus Christ. We address it by reaching out to those whose minds are blinded by the things of Satan, whose eyes have been turned away from Christ and to themselves, and we reach out with the gospel. We reach out with words of grace and care as well as those actions that demonstrate it. Now, I don't know if it's a problem in your life that that you define sin or you define salvation or heaven in a way that that they are to your own liking apart from Scripture. I've spoken to many people in the church in general who have a view of God that is pretty much like a smorgasbord. They like doing that. They like taking bits and pieces and making it their own. I guess uh, if I had to wrap this up, and, and you know, we're basically only in the first verse, okay? But if I had to wrap this up, Nicodemus had finally had enough of the legalism of being a Pharisee and being a Greek scholar and being in the Sanhedrin the intellectual snobbery, that political maneuvering, all of those things. So he goes to Jesus Christ. Our society is so full of alternatives to the one truth of Scripture that is absolute and that is unchanging, and salvation is found only here. See, each of us was created for a relationship. God created us in his image, not in the image of something else, but in his. And we are created for that relationship with him. It doesn't come through legalism. It doesn't come through crossing the T's and dotting the I's. It comes through a relationship with Jesus Christ. And from all accounts, we can find that Nicodemus experiences that in his life, and he is forever changed. So when we look at it and say, well, someone here, you know, I'm, I'm too gone, too far gone, or my neighbor's too far gone, they're too into society. Nicodemus was as into the legalism as you could get, but yet the love of Christ changed his heart forever. If there's an emptiness in your life, if there's a longing in your heart, there's a nagging of something that is unfulfilled in your life, then you have to look anywhere else but here in Christ. Because that's where the answers are found. Let's pray. Lord, we we look at Nicodemus as he comes to Christ at night. and, And we know that you have drawn him to this point. But he comes with all these things. He comes like... Like so many people, even in our own culture, they want to make you into what they want you to be. They want the path to be according to their own plans. They want heaven to be what they think it should be. They want the way to get there to be how they think it should be. But yet your scripture is clear. There's one way to you, and that's through Jesus Christ. Heaven is a place that for all eternity, those who are in Christ, those who belong to you, will sing of your praises and, and serve and, 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 and who knows what else, but we will be in your presence. What greater glory would there be? But we also know the alternative, Lord, that your scripture is clear as well. That there is a place for those who are not in Christ. And it is a place as your word says, of weeping and gnashing of teeth, of an eternal punishment for sin, which we all deserve, but yet you are gracious to extend some, this saving grace. Lord, I pray that you would come upon our hearts today and upon the hearts of those that we will be in contact with this week. Perhaps each of us knows somebody who's, 
who just in conversation is trying to shape God in the way that they want him to be, not the way that he says he is. That we would be gentle in our approach, but firm, stating what is true. And that you would use those words, however feeble, however jumbled, to soften their heart and to open their eyes to the things of Christ. That they might understand that there is one way to the Father, the way that he has determined. And that is through his Son, Jesus the Christ, who has given his life for us. The perfect sacrifice. That sacrifice of love and obedience, grace and mercy that can fill our hearts. Come, Heavenly Father, fill our hearts today with this. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Our hymn is 108, Rock of Ages, Cleft for Me. Let's stand as we sing 108. <laughs> 